Hi, I'm Lewis, and welcome to Searching for It. For those of you who are listening to the podcast for the first time, and for those of you who have tuned in before, you'll already know, the aim of Searching for It is to explore those philosophies and ways of life that can give our lives meaning or offer a worthwhile purpose to direct our lives towards. In this respect, you might want to say that this podcast is optimistic, insofar as we take our existence as a starting point, and from there we try to figure out how we can make the best of it, how we can live our best possible lives. But when you look at the podcast in this way, the philosophy we're going to be looking at today is, you might want to say, the opposite of what this podcast is all about. To the extent that searching for it is, as I say, optimistic, antinatalism is pessimistic. Like searching for it, antinatalism begins by looking at the nature of human existence, but rather than trying to identify how best to live our lives, what antinatalism is all about is showing why it might be the case that being born, coming into existence, is actually a bad thing in the first place. It might sound like a strange choice of topic for this podcast, but it's worth considering, if antinatalists are right, then the whole scope of this podcast would shift. The important thing would no longer be to find those things that make life meaningful. The priority would be to find a way to stop the suffering that life brings as quickly as possible. So I think it's an interesting and an important issue to grapple with. It's always important to consider opposing points of view, and hopefully if we're able to find a way of disagreeing with the antinatalists, we can continue trying to find a way of making our lives as meaningful as possible. Or I guess if we're going to agree with what the antinatalists have to say, then we might want to radically alter the ways that we're going to go about our lives. Antinatalism isn't just, you know, a straight and simple philosophy though. There's a lot of different positions that an antinatalist might want to take. Some of them might defend the more hardline position and say that we'd be better off if we were all to die as quick a painless death as possible. Some might think we should try to live our own lives as happily as possible, but at least refrain from bringing any new children into the world. And some antinatalists might not be so philosophical in their belief and might just be expressing the fact that they really don't like kids. And it's not a new idea either. People have been having these kind of thoughts for literally thousands of years. We'll come to look at Buddhism in a lot more detail in the next one or two episodes. But even there, going back hundreds of years before Christ, you find teachings on human life being defined by suffering, and in large part Buddhism is designed to show us the path away from this natural state of suffering. And more recently too, you've got the German philosopher Arthur Schopenhauer, who wrote in the 1800s about the tragic nature of life, and how the best way to endure life is to essentially turn your back on life altogether, to reject desire, to enter a state of a kind of indifference to the world. But there's only so much we can talk about in a single episode, and as interesting as those philosophies from Buddhism and Schopenhauer are, they don't really represent antinatalism in its current form. Antinatalism's really taken off in the last few years. There's a subreddit dedicated to it on Reddit with over 40,000 subscribers, and definitely the most prominent antinatalist of the 21st century is a South African philosopher called David Benatar. Now, be warned, Benatar is a really, really controversial philosopher, and it's not hard to see why. He's probably most known for his antinatalism. Specifically, what he argues is that we shouldn't have children because, for each person, it would be better if they would never to have existed. And besides his work on antinatalism, possibly his second most popular book is called The Second Sexism, Discrimination Against Men and Boys, where he argues that we should take seriously the discrimination that men face just as much as the discrimination that women face too. Now, arguing that you're a bad person if you have kids and that men suffer just as much from sexism as women, 
It's almost as if he picked two of the least popular positions imaginable in philosophy and built his career upon arguing for them. So it's pretty easy to just dismiss Benatar as a crank or a contrarian. But I think we'd be too quick to dismiss him on that basis. Sure, his works seem controversial when they're reduced to a three-second soundbite, but reading his work you see that this is a serious philosopher and a very careful philosopher at work here. Benatar doesn't pluck his beliefs out of thin air. He's got a really interesting approach where he begins by taking some pretty regular, pretty non-controversial starting points and proceeds to show that if you accept these common beliefs, then the logical entailment is actually something pretty surprising, like that having children is morally wrong. And in actual fact, for all the success he's found as a philosopher, I gather that it's actually not too easy to make these arguments in public. Benatar's extremely private, there's not a single photo of him available on the internet, and trust me, you can really go down a rabbit hole trying to figure out what the guy looks like, which is really rare for someone of his prominence. And my understanding is that he's so careful about protecting his identity because of the backlash to some of his arguments. But all of this is to say that Benatar's not just a contrarian. As you can see in his books and on the podcast he's made appearances on too, he's really careful with the way he argues, and he's actually able to make his positions sound surprisingly compelling. I'll admit now though, although I'm a fan of Benatar's style, I like his precise step-by-step arguments. I don't agree with some of the intuitions that he bases his argument on, so I don't personally buy his conclusions. I'll talk about why that is when we look at his arguments a bit later, but my intention isn't to convince anyone, I'll let you make up your own minds. Because whether you agree with Benatar or not, his arguments are definitely provocative, interesting, and I think pretty important to understand yourselves as well. But before we get stuck into his antinatalism, why he thinks that being born is a bad thing and why we shouldn't have children, it's worth taking a moment to consider, well, why is the belief that having children is harmful such an unpopular belief? I mean, moral philosophers make all kinds of arguments that torture is wrong or that torture can be justified, that euthanasia is wrong or that euthanasia can be justified. Moral philosophers get involved in some really emotional subjects. But not so many moral philosophers are met with quite as strongly an emotional reaction as Benatar is. Well, Benatar actually has some ideas as to why, when we think about antinatalism, pronatalism, the question of having children, we might have some strong feelings. For Benatar, there are certain factors that will likely bias us towards the view that having children is a good and a normal thing to do. I mean, First of all, there's the fact that, frankly, within society today, having children is the conventionally normal thing to do. And this isn't normally something that gets questioned. People have answers to every question conceivable about pregnancy, childbirth, but when you ask somebody, what are children for, they might be pretty confused. Having children likely isn't even seen as a choice by a lot of people, or something to weigh up the arguments for and against, it's just something you do. And then you've got the argument from evolution too. The fact that people who are more driven to have children are of course more likely to have children, more likely to pass on their genes and over a long time develop a species of humans who all have a strong reproductive impulse. The point being that for Benatar, for whatever reason we might have some strong biases towards having children in our head. So if we really want to take his argument seriously, we might be best off putting those feelings to one side and judging his arguments on their own merit. I was listening to one podcast with David Benatar recently, he was talking about the kind of reaction he faces to his arguments, and one thing he pointed out was that often he's asked the pretty harsh question, well, 
if you genuinely believe, Benatar, that life is so harmful, that life isn't worth living, then why haven't you killed yourself yet? I think that the people who pose this question are trying to make the point you can't genuinely believe in antinatalism if you're not following through on it in your own actions, so why should I take your argument seriously? You can kind of understand why people might have that thought, but as Benatar pointed out in this podcast, it's pretty cruel to ask someone, well, why haven't you killed yourself yet? But besides it being cruel to pose that question, the people who make this criticism are missing out on a crucial distinction that I think it's worth unpacking before we move on to Benatar's arguments. Now, for reasons we'll look at in just a moment, as we've said, Benatar thinks that it's a bad thing to bring someone into existence. If there's a choice between never existing and being born, never existing is always the preferred option. But when we're born, we no longer face a choice between existing and never existing. That choice is no longer on the table. We exist either way. Once we've been born, like you, I, David Benatar, all have, the choice we now face is between killing ourselves and continuing to live. And that's not the same choice as never existing and being born. And the reason for this is, once we've come into existence and we've begun our life, there are some pretty serious harms we would face by killing ourselves, harms that we wouldn't have had to face if we never existed in the first place. There's another popular book on antinatalism by an author called Sarah Perry, which I've listed in the recommending reading on the Searching For It website, and Perry makes a quite compelling list of all the ways that attempting to commit suicide, once we're already alive, could harm us. I mean, most obviously, once we've been born and raised, to kill ourselves and to end our lives would often cause a great deal of suffering to our loved ones. And in actual fact, we might end horribly off ourselves. Suicide attempts aren't always successful, and if it fails, we risk causing ourselves to have certain disabilities, and maybe we might be involuntarily committed to a hospital or have some other of our freedoms taken away. And even if the act of suicide were successful, we'd have to confront our natural fear of ending our life, follow through on the unpleasant act of suicide, and all of this in the knowledge that someone's going to have to discover our body. All of this is to say, once we've been brought into existence, there are some terrible costs we'd have to face to end our life. But crucially, if we were never born in the first place, we'd never have to face these costs. There would be nobody to mourn our death, we wouldn't have to go through the painful process of killing ourselves, and we wouldn't have to risk our attempt being unsuccessful. So when the likes of David Benatar argue that it's better never to have been born, that life is a bad thing, that doesn't mean that the logical entailment of his position is to commit suicide, because in virtue of having been born, ending his life would be much more costly to himself than if he'd never been born at all, which, for him, would be the preferable scenario. And that's why the emphasis of Benatar's antinatalism is that we shouldn't begin lives, or in other words, that we shouldn't have children. But as I say, he's not necessarily arguing that we should kill ourselves now that our life has begun. So with that in mind, let's look at why on earth Benatar might think that life isn't worth beginning in the first place. There's two kind of main ways that Benatar makes his arguments, so we'll look at them one by one. For the more philosophical, kind of rationalist, logical thinkers among you who might be listening, the first argument from Benatar might resonate, as it's a clever, kind of technical, philosophical argument that shows why coming into existence is always a bad thing. But I'll try not to get too heavily bogged down in this argument, because there's another way of thinking about antinatalism as well that's a bit more down-to-earth, a bit more grounded in our day-to-day -day experience, and easier to empathise with. We'll come on to that second way of thinking in about 10 minutes or so, 
But first, let's begin with Benatar's super logical, technical, philosophical argument. So, first, just think about the question at hand here. Is life worth living, and should we bring new people into the world? Well, how on earth would you begin to go about trying to answer that, besides just saying, yeah, I kind of like life, I'm sure my kids will too? Well, one way you might want to start is to think of all the good things on life on one side, and all the bad things on the other. You know, you've got beautiful art, tasty food, and friends and family on one side, and pain, suffering, and Donald Trump on the other. Now, before you get ahead of yourself, Benatar's not just going to ask you to weigh these things up against each other. That's more or less what we'll be doing in the second argument. The argument we're looking at here goes deeper than that. Instead, let's think about the nature of good things and bad things. What does it mean to talk about the good parts of life and the bad parts of life? Well, one thing you could definitely say is, it's good when we experience the good things in life, and it's bad when we experience the bad things in life. So it's clear that if we bring someone into existence, they'll experience some good things and some bad things. Now, that's an easy claim to make, it's almost true by definition. But, as we looked at in the second altruism episode, when we're trying to make a decision about what to do, we can't just look at what would happen if we do something, we also need to consider what we call the counterfactual, what would happen otherwise if we didn't do it. I mean, if I consider spending my lifelong savings on the most expensive champagne I can possibly find, if I only think about what would happen if I did it, then it seems great, it seems like a good idea, I enjoy a really nice bottle of champagne. But when I consider the counterfactual if I didn't buy the champagne, well, things would probably be a lot better because I could spend my money on a house, a car, on something that actually matters. So with that in mind, let's consider the counterfactual to childbirth. What would happen if we didn't bring the person into existence? Well, first of all, the person wouldn't experience all the bad things that life brings. You know, the pain, the suffering. And that's surely a good thing. It's always good when there's less pain and suffering in the world. But then equally, in terms of the good things in life, the person wouldn't experience those either. But, and this is where there's a difference for Benatar, and this is where the argument gets technical, if someone doesn't exist, and they don't experience all the pleasures of life, this isn't a bad thing, because there's no person in existence who's been deprived of those pleasures, because nobody existed at all. I mean, think about it, if somebody's going to exist either way, and you deprive them of a good experience, like, if you've just been served a delicious cocktail at a fancy bar, and I reach across and tip it over, now, that's a bad thing, because you have been deprived of a good experience. But in the case of choosing not to have children, there's no person you can point towards for whom it's a bad thing that they never watched that movie, never ate that meal, never drank that cocktail. So it's not a bad thing that nobody ever experienced those pleasures. So what's going on here is that there's a crucial asymmetry for Benatar. There's a difference in the nature of good experiences and bad experiences. Sure, having good experiences is always a good thing, and having bad experiences is always bad. But whereas getting rid of bad experiences is always a good thing, even if we do so by ensuring that nobody exists to have those bad experiences, it's not the same the other way round. It's not actually a bad thing if somebody doesn't exist and never has all of these good experiences, because there's no person who is deprived of those good experiences. If that's a bit confusing, and as I say it is a technical argument, let's take a really stripped back example to make the point. So, maybe we're in an IVF lab. We've got a fertilised embryo, 
and we're deciding whether or not we're going to provide that embryo with a surrogate mother to birth it. And if we were to bring them into existence, the person, let's call him Kevin, will grow up to live a conventionally happy life. He'll have his bad moments as well, of course, but he'll live a generally privileged life. Now, the good things Kevin will experience, the joy at his wedding, the pleasures from eating his favourite foods, from hanging out with his friends, these are all good things. But the bad things Kevin will experience, you know, the heartbreak in his younger years, the grief he'll feel for his loved ones as they pass, and the pain he'll feel in his older years as his body starts to run down, they're all bad things. But the point Benatar's making is, let's imagine we didn't fertilise that embryo. Kevin was never born, and he never had to go through the heartbreak, the grief, the pain. That, taken on its own merit, would be a good thing. It's always good to remove suffering from the world. On the other hand, of course, it would mean that Kevin never married his wife, he never ate that food, never hung out with his friends. But Benatar wants to say that wouldn't actually be a bad thing, because Kevin never existed in the first place, so it's not as if he was ever deprived of those pleasures. Nobody was ever deprived of those pleasures. And if you're tempted to say that it would be a bad thing if Kevin never had these experiences, just think about that a moment and consider, is it a tragedy every time someone has sex and uses contraception? Because that too is preventing someone who would have come into existence otherwise from having all these great experiences as well. If you want to think that it is a bad thing when people who otherwise would have existed miss out on these good experiences, it seems that you'd commit yourself to saying that, morally speaking, we really should be bringing as many new people as possible into existence so that they can all experience these wonderful pleasures too. So as much as you might want to say that antinatalism is controversial, According to Benatar, its reverse is pretty counterintuitive too. So that's all very well, we've got this asymmetry between good experiences and bad experiences, but what can we take from this? As we saw earlier, when we bring someone into existence, the child will have good experiences and bad experiences, so bringing them into existence is good in some ways and bad in others. But when we opt not to bring someone into existence, there's no child to have good or bad experiences, and as we've seen, it's a good thing that we generate no suffering, but it's not a bad thing that we generate no pleasurable experiences. So, to be crystal clear, if you choose to have a child, this will result in both good and bad consequences, whereas if you choose not to have a child, the only consequences will be good, i.e. the avoidance of pain and suffering. So, if having children results in good and bad, but not having children is only good, the scales will always fall down on the side of not having children. And therefore, so says the argument, having children is always the morally wrong choice. Now, it's got its critics, but I do think the argument Benatar makes here is really clever. He takes a fairly plausible intuition that the reduction of suffering is always a good thing, but it is not necessarily a bad thing if someone never existed and misses out on the pleasures of life. And Benatar shows that if you accept that intuition, it ends up taking you to the much more controversial position that being brought into existence is always a harm, always a bad thing. Now, as I mentioned earlier, that argument is kind of technical, it is kind of abstract, it's based on philosophical reasoning, and maybe it's not that emotional an argument. And personally, it's not something that I find particularly compelling. For me, I'd want to say, sure, if we were to choose not to reproduce, it's a good thing that whatever suffering the child would have gone through will no longer have to happen. But unlike Benatar, I think I would want to commit myself to saying that it is a bad thing 
when people don't come into existence and miss out on all the pleasures they would otherwise would have had. I mean, think, for example, of a really loving relationship and how lucky you feel that you've met your partner in that relationship. I think it's pretty natural to think something like, man, I'm so lucky that I met you. And I don't think it's controversial to say that the reverse applies too, that it would have been terrible if you never did meet your partner, even if the reason you never met them was that you never happened to be born. I don't agree with Benatar that for the absence of a good experience to be a bad thing, there has to be someone in existence to have been deprived of that pleasure. I think it's much more plausible to say that it's always a bad thing when non-existent people miss out on the pleasures they otherwise would have had. The point then being that there is no asymmetry between good experiences and bad experiences. If we're born, we'll have good times and bad times, and if we're not born, then it's both good that we avoid the worst experiences and bad that we miss out on the best. So there is no asymmetry, at, at least for me. Admittedly, as Benatar points out, this might commit me to the position that we've got strong moral reasons to bring lots of new people into existence and generate as many happy lives as possible, but I don't think this is as absurd as Benatar suggests. But for anyone who's not convinced by Benatar, or for anyone who finds his arguments a bit abstract, there's another way he argues that being born is a bad thing, and this second argument is more straightforward and definitely easier to kind of feel along with. So earlier we began by thinking of all the good experiences we might ever have on one side, and all the bad experiences we might ever have on the other. Well, we'll start at the same place here, and the process is going to be a bit simpler this time. We'll weigh up the good and weigh up the bad and see what comes out on top. I definitely think that the intuitive response, and the common response too, is to say that good things come out on top and that life's worth living. I'm sure most people would say something like, no, look, I'm enjoying my life. Sure, it might come with some harms, some suffering, time to time, but in general I enjoy being alive. But according to Benatar, the closer we examine our own lives, the more that we see that that kind of thinking isn't really very accurate. So he, and Sarah Perry in her book too, essentially give a list of all the good things and bad things in our life. They look at the differences between them, and they think that when you look closely, you see that the bad are stronger and more common than the good experiences. So let's start with the good things in life. You can think of whichever ones you like. Everyone enjoys different things, but some things I think more or less everyone will enjoy would be, as we said earlier, say, the pleasure you get from eating food, sexual pleasures too, being in good company. There's no point in sitting here and reeling off all the good things we can ever experience. I think I'd lose a few listeners, and it's not the point anyway. The point Benatar wants to make about these good experiences is that they all share a common feature, and Benatar's drawing on an observation here that Buddhists have been making for thousands of years, these good experiences are all temporary, they don't last forever, and in actual fact, they probably won't last very long at all. The best food you've ever eaten, your peak sexual experience, the best time you've spent hanging out with your friends, you know, the best anything, the best holiday, the best concert, the best adventure sport, you name it, they're all temporary. Whereas, before we have that fantastic but temporary experience, we firstly have a desire for it. We might be hungry so we eat, thirsty so we drink, want to socialise so we see our friends. We tend to desire something before we have these good experiences. And when we desire, we're in a state of discontent, of wanting more. But this desire, it's not temporary like the experience itself. The desire isn't something that comes on suddenly and goes pretty quickly. 
by and large, we'll continue desiring things, and we won't stop until we achieve them, and then we'll just desire something else. And take the eating example. We don't just eat because we fancy it in the moment. We can't just isolate eating as a pleasurable experience in and of itself. We eat because we're hungry. And I'm sure that almost everyone would agree the state of being hungry before eating isn't a pleasurable experience. The state of being hungry, I'm sure, for most people, would fall into the bad things in life. But whereas the pleasure we get from eating food is temporary, it'll last maybe 10, 15 minutes or so, we can be hungry for an indefinite amount of time. When hunger comes on, you'll be hungry until you eat that meal, and that can be for hours. And to make matters worse, when we're weighing up our good experiences against the bad, it's not just a case of weighing up our collection of temporary pleasures against this never-ending string of desires that precede them. We've also got to take the rest of our bad experiences into account too. And as Benatar points out, you'll find a lot of these. We mentioned earlier some of the particularly horrible experiences, heartbreak, grief, pain. But these sporadic negative experiences are far from our only ones. On a day-to-day -day level, most people will experience feeling maybe too hot or too cold, feeling hungry or thirsty, anxious, itchy. You might experience headaches or some other kind of pain. And at their worst level, some of these sufferings become excruciating. Think of the people who suffer from incurable chronic pain, from severe depression, those who have lost their children, or maybe suffer from some painful terminal illness. When we weigh up these bad experiences against the good, so says Benatar, things start to look really bad. First of all, as we've seen, pleasures tend only to be temporary. You don't eat a nice steak and have the taste stay in your mouth for 20 years, it always goes pretty fast. Whereas certain kinds of suffering, you know, think chronic pain, certain mental illnesses, and there are people who, due to whatever reason, can't avoid certain bodily sensations such as hunger, thirst or the cold, these can last indefinitely, for years even. Along these lines, Sarah Perry references a study from 1978 that compares people who have had some really good fortune and won the lottery with people who have been paralysed from a serious accident. The study showed that a year on, whereas the lottery winners had come back down to their base level of happiness, they were no happier than they were before, those that had been paralysed still found themselves thinking about how much better life had been before their accident. The pain of paralysis stuck with them far longer than the joy stuck with the lottery winners. And what's more, these bad experiences don't just last longer, they can also be more severe. I mean, if you think of the best experience imaginable, I'll leave it up to you what that might be, it's probably not going to come close in its strength to the worst kind of torture imaginable. And if you're tempted to think that they might be comparable, consider for a moment, would you accept a deal whereby you could experience that pleasure for a solid one hour, but only if you endured the worst torture imaginable for one hour first? I'd imagine that not many people would take that deal. So, taking all of what we just said, Benatar paints a pretty unforgiving picture of human life. A human life for Benatar is a life marked by constant suffering, constant pains and constant strife to achieve these elusive desires, which even when fulfilled are fleeting and don't come close to making up for the totality of our strife and suffering. When we look at it through this lens, maybe according to Benatar, we might see that it's the bad that outweighs the good, that life is on average a net harm. 
And maybe we should think long and hard about whether we want to bring new people into a world where they run not just the risk, but the certain prospect of enduring such suffering. I'm sure lots of people will find Benatar's arguments counterintuitive, and I count myself among them. But Benatar does point out that there are psychological reasons why we might be averse to accepting his arguments, even if they're true. We mentioned a couple of these earlier. You know, you've got the argument from evolution, the kind of people who are likely to pass on their genes are those who think that having children is a good idea, and there's also the fact that society is very weighted towards seeing life and having children as a good, normal thing. But there's another interesting bias that Benatar thinks might be at play here. There's something called the Pollyanna Principle, or positivity bias. So what this is, the Pollyanna Principle, is the tendency that people have to remember positive memories more vividly and more accurately than negative memories. And the positivity bias can manifest in other ways too. There are studies that show that people are more likely to use positive words than negative words in sentences. There's a study that actually shows that on Twitter, users are more likely to favourite and retweet positive tweets. And we're more likely to recall the positive than the negative aspects from our memories too. The point being then, that our own memories might not actually be the best tool at our disposal for weighing up the good parts of our life against the bad, for determining whether or not our lives have been net positive or net negative. I mean, if you have a machine built to count money, and it counts the coins perfectly but sometimes misses out a big note, you won't get a very accurate result. And equally, if we use our memory, which has a tendency to pick out the positive memories at the expense of the negative, we won't get a clear picture. So what Benatar wants us to do is to leave our biases to one side, to forget these rudimentary methods of measuring the value of our lives, and instead to adopt his analytical approach of examining the features of good experiences, the features of negative experiences, and how they differ. And when we do so, according to Benatar, we reach the conclusion that the bad outweighs the good. Now, I mentioned earlier that I'm not personally sold by Benatar's arguments, and although I definitely think he gives us food for thought here, I'm not convinced by this one either. My first thought when I was reading Benatar was, can't we just continue to have children and at least give them the choice whether they want to live or not? You know, if they're happy to have been born, as I would guess most of us are, then great. But if life really is as bad as Benatar says, then they've always got the option to end their own life, at least give them the choice to live or not, as we've been doing for millennia. And I for one am glad that I was given the choice. Well, Sarah Perry points out that that argument, my argument I just gave there, doesn't really work, because as we saw earlier, there are some strong costs that come with suicide. If we bring people into existence under the proviso that they can always end their own lives if it gets too bad, they'd have to go through the horrible process of actually ending their lives. It's like, Sarah Perry points out, getting an invitation to a boring dinner party you don't really want to attend, and now you've been invited, you face the option of attending, which you don't want to do, or rejecting the invitation and upsetting the host, which you don't want to do either. It would be better if you were never invited to the party in the first place. And equally, maybe it would be better if we just never existed in the first place. But personally, antinatalism still doesn't resonate, because to me it doesn't seem so clear that life is such a terrible thing in the first place. I mean, credit where it's due, Benatar does have a point that the worst experiences in life are probably much stronger than the best, and I also think it's fair to say that suffering and pains can be more long-lasting than single instances of pleasure, but I don't think it necessarily follows from that that life isn't worth living. As I mentioned earlier, we'll talk about Buddhism more next month, 
But Buddhism is just one philosophy or school of thought that shows how we can transform experiences that are typically thought to involve suffering to, well, not really making us suffer at all. Buddhists show how we can experience things like pain, but avoid the negativity and the discomfort that comes along with pain. So Benatar may well be right that typically bad experiences can be stronger than typically good experiences, but if we can find a way of being satisfied with even the most negative experiences, maybe we can still find ways of making life worth living. In which case, maybe antinatalism, this rejection of life altogether, might be a bit of a dramatic response to the pains of life, because perhaps there are ways we can live our lives and attitudes we can adopt that Benatar hasn't considered, that can make us content with suffering, can make us content with all the trials and tribulations that life brings, and transform our lives from what Benatar sees as not being worth living, to actually being something quite wonderful. This may be more or less convincing to those of you listening. Benatar definitely does argue strongly, and I'm open to being convinced that maybe my intuition here is a bit off. But if you do accept Benatar's arguments, it does take you to some pretty crazy places. Because for sure, as we've seen, one of his conclusions is that we really shouldn't be having children. Being born isn't a blessing, it's a curse. Given the magnitude of potential suffering each person can face, Benatar actually says at one point in his book, perhaps with a touch of melodrama, that choosing to bring people into existence is like, in his words, playing Russian roulette with a fully loaded gun, aimed not at one's own head, but at the heads of their future offspring. But Benatar actually takes it even further than that. According to Benatar, we're not doing enough if just one couple chooses not to have a child. Really, in the best case scenario, we should all be working towards human extinction. Out of context, yeah, it sounds like a really crazy thing to say, especially when you've got groups of people like the effective altruists we looked at in episode 9, many of whom think that one of the most effective, positive things we can do is to make efforts to prevent human extinction. But really, this is just one logical entailment of Benatar's views. I mean, why continue the human race if we all live lives that really aren't worth living anyway? And technically, Benatar's not saying that we should all kill ourselves or destroy the planet right away. The thinking is that once each of us are alive, we have a continued interest in existing. So it wouldn't be in our own individual best interest to kill ourselves. And equally, we can't all just stop having children right away. There would be a lot of really horrible suffering in 60 or so years' time as the rest of us who are alive all reach a retirement age and there's no one left to sustain us. So, Benatar talks about this in his book, and he says that the best possible outcome is one in which we gradually phase out the human race, bringing less and less people into existence with each new generation, to make our process of extinction as painless as possible. I said earlier that reading Benatar almost sounds like you're reading someone who's made it their career goal to formulate as provocative a philosophy as they possibly can. And as if arguing that it's better never to exist, and that we should end the human race isn't enough, Benatar also applies antinatalism to the abortion debate, and what he comes up with is what he calls the pro-death view. You know, you've got the pro-choice campaigners who want to give women the choice to abort, you've got the pro-life camp who think that the abortion is always wrong, then you've got Benatar, who thinks that the preferred option is just to abort. To be fair, he doesn't say that abortion should be mandatory, just that it's the preferred option, at least up until the point that the fetus starts to develop consciousness. I don't know if any of you listening might have ever come across the trolley problem in philosophy. It's the question that asks, if you have a train hurtling along the tracks towards five people, and you have a chance to divert the train away from the five, 
and into a single other person on a single other track, should you let the train go its course and hit the five? Or should you yourself intervene and redirect the train to hit the one person? Now there's a fantastic page on Facebook, Trolley Problem Memes, I can't believe I'm referencing this, that satires this problem really well, and one of their go-to shticks is multi-track drifting, saying that the train driver should just drift along both tracks and kill all six. Well, when Benatar sticks his head above the parapet and says he's defending the pro-death view, he does almost come across as so contrarian, as facetious as the guys talking about multi-track drifting, almost as if he's taking the mick. But as I've said already, what's so interesting about Benatar's philosophy is that he takes that one simple, uncontroversial starting point that, as I say, the deprivation of suffering is always good, but the deprivation of pleasure is not a bad thing if there's no existent person to be deprived of the pleasure. And using that starting point, Benatar follows it to its logical conclusion, and ends up with the view that having children is wrong, it would be best if the human race, and maybe animals too, were to die out sooner rather than later, and that both pro-lifers and pro-choicers have it wrong, and it's the pro-death camp who are really onto something. Whether you agree with Benatar or not, I always find it fascinating to find a philosopher who's able to construct such controversial conclusions from what really are such ordinary starting points. But that's it for antinatalism today. If you find it interesting and want to learn more, you can always check out the recommended reading page on www.searchingforit.org to see the books I've personally found useful preparing for this episode. You can find a link on the Searching For It website to our Patreon page, where you can choose to pledge your support to the show, or alternatively, it's always a massive help to the show if you're able to leave a rating or a quick review on your podcast app of choice. Searching For It will be back on the first Monday of 2020, with an episode on Buddhism, hopefully a bit more life-affirming than antinatalism, and I'll see you then. (laughs) 